This week on the Backtable podcast. Still a lot of countries where uh, maybe access to that possibility or to that technology is not, it's not there yet. And I think it's just worth uh, giving it a shot uh, and worth uh, starting and trying and, and opening, <laughs> opening the road there to make it access to, to everyone. Because I think um, access to sound is such an important thing, us being social. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT. We bring you the best and brightest in our field with the hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. My name is Gopi Shah, and I'm a pediatric ENT. Today, I have a very special guest all the way from Costa Rica. I have Dr. Adriana Vega. She is a pediatric otolaryngologist practicing at the Hospital Nacional de Niños in San Jose, Costa Rica. She's a pediatric cochlear implant surgeon. Adriana and I met in September at a PD endoscopic ENT conference in Barcelona at Hospital San Jean de Deu. And I got to hear about her practice and I wanted to share her experience with you all, our Backtable listeners today. So today, Adriana is going to talk to us about her building a pediatric CI program in Costa Rica. Welcome mm-hmm. to the show, Adriana. It's so nice to see you and talk to you. Thank you so much, Gopi. It's a pleasure for me to be here. I'm really privileged and honored. <laughs> well, um, just if you uh, could tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your practice. Sure. Well, I'm, a, as you said, a pediatric ENT. I, it's been a while now, since 2009, I started my private practice and also public practice. In Costa Rica, we have a robust social security system, which we are really proud of. And in that sense, it's a, a social security system that forms residents and also eventually it hires. Or we have like uh, most of the uh, doctors here in Costa Rica do work in the public system as well as the private system. So right now, as you introduced in the beginning, I do work part time at Hospital Nacional de Niños, and that's where basically we are implanting children there. And there's another hospital, Hospital Mexico, where we are implanting adults there. So it's a program that combines adults and children. And eventually it's a a team. Uh, I think we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But it's one of the things that I'm really passionate about because it's such a life-changing experience and opportunity for for children, as of course all of us know. So it's basically that. I mean, in my private practice, I see a little bit of everything, but basically in my public practice, which I'm part-time, I do implant surgery, but as well, I'm not only dedicated to ear surgery, I do airway surgery or other kinds of course of general ENT surgeries because um, we're a small country and we're 5.5 million people in the whole country. And and so it's just one uh, national hospital, a children's hospital for the entire country. So the population, as you can see, it's, yeah, it, it's not that big. And so because of that, I mean, we have to do a little bit of everything. That's awesome. So uh, just one quick question about in your practice at the public hospital, um, you said you have residents, medical students. So it's a training program. Exactly. Uh, we don't have a fellowship in pediatric ENT, but all residents of ENT, they do their pediatric formation in that hospital. So it's usually they are there for six months, depending, sometimes even longer, but at least six months is the period of time uh, doing the residency program that they are in the Hospital de Niños, doing the the pediatric part. Awesome. All right. So let's get into our topic today. Adriana, tell us how some of the infants come to you. 
you know, is there a hearing screen, newborn hearing screen, universal anchothetic? Yes, we do have a a universal hearing screening program. It's been running for a couple of more than four to five years already. It's something that it's, it's universal. And as a matter of fact, in 2020, we had more or less like 54,000 children screened. And in 27 different places, usually that screening is done by nurses or audiologists, depending. And it's based on autoacoustic emissions. If they fail, eventually they repeat them 15 days after the first screening. And if they fail again, then they are sent to us to already do all the audiologic battery. Usually we start with the ABRs and everything, but uh, basically the babies that fail that screening uh, on the second time are the ones that come to our hospital eventually for all the workup. Okay. And um, you said it's, it's, is it always OAEs? Does it ever, do babies in the NICU, for example, ever get ABRs? Yes, they do. And usually those, we have like four or five maybe NICUs in the country. It's not that many. So uh, usually all those children are screened with the ABRs and not with the AOAs. And um, you said usually it's your nurse or your audiologist doing the screening. And then if they fail the OAEs twice or potentially the initial ABR, then they're sent to you. Exactly. They're sent to me, but they're, well, they're sent to me and uh, to the audiologist of the hospital who have to use a micro, a copular microphonics or to use all the rest of uh, audiologic testing, we do it in, in the hospital properly because uh, there might be in these hospitals or these 27 places that I'm telling you that we have the screening, there's, uh, they're really abroad. Maybe hospitals are smaller, don't have the technology to do all the, or complete all the, the testing. So that's why they are sent to our hospital to complete it. I see. And so um, you're then probably seeing these babies usually at how many weeks? Usually they're seen and we're the, the aim is to have them diagnosed at three months. So um, they might fail the first one. And then while we are doing all the studies and everything at three months, if the, we have a diagnosis, then we go ahead and put bilateral hearing aids and start that. And then we do a trial for uh, six months. And if at six months uh, we see any changes or any, yeah, or we do also eventually the speech therapist evaluates the child at the beginning and then when he completes the six months. And uh, of course, they're babies. We don't expect much, much speech at that moment, but still there are different things that she evaluates. And just to see if there's any change in the perception also of the parents of if the child is having any improvements with the hearing aids. And if they're not, then by then we are doing other evals depending on each child. And if they complete the evaluations and have not have any advantage with the hearing aids, then we go to the cochlear implant commission, present the case, and then just schedule the the patient for the implants or the surgery. In terms of the other evals, can you tell us uh, what those are? Yeah, we usually do social service social workup because in our country it's really important to see there's people a lot of people with really low resources economic resources and that I think it's one of the our main problem or how you could say that it's it's what sometimes hasn't made everything like work as you would like so the social workup uh, what they do what the social service uh, does and studies is 
to see if they have any a family that supports or what's their income and if they're going to be able to support the implant or eventually the speech therapist that comes after that. And so that's one of the evaluations. Psychology is another evaluation. Okay, also to see in t general terms any red flags on the, on the child that might need a little bit of support. Also, we have speech therapists and those are the ones that we basically have. And there might be that, that are not uh, always there, but uh, genetics and also the unit of development, you could say that those are pediatricians that look at the, uh, the child. Sometimes if it's a child that has a certain autism or any delays, any developmental delays that also we might need uh, help with. So, and to have a better and broader eval of the patient before going into to the OR. That makes sense. So the CI team, you have your audiologist, your speech pathologist, uh -huh. your social work team, psychology when necessary, and then when you can get genetics and a developmental pediatrician. If that's Ex exactly. So, uh, psychology is always there. Okay. Um, the ones that are may not or may uh, be, <laughs> it's uh, social uh, development and genetics. Okay. And in that six-month hearing aid trial, um, how often do they either see you or the audiologist, or the child and the family? How often do they come in? Usually like a couple of times, one or two times. It depends. But usually it's more into there's to ending, they're keeping on the rest of the evals. They go to the speech therapist like twice also, and like maybe it could be one time. It's not something that it's set up as mandatory, but minimum one to two. And in those visits, is there basically checking for how much the child can tolerate the hearing aids? And exactly, if they're using and how how many hours a day they're using the hearing aids, if they're responding or not responding. It's basically more a perception of the parents at that point, but it's basically that how much are they using it a day, if they're tolerating or not, if they're taking them off constantly or not, and basically reinforcing that with the parents. It's it's a lot of uh, talking with the parents of their perception, the road they have ahead, and also uh, how important it is to, if they're accepting the hearing aid, and to keep them as long as they can. Tell me a little bit about how you counsel your families in Costa Rica. What are some of the main concerns that you see that are very common with your families and your practice there? Yeah, I believe that sometimes they are not aware. Well, I usually just most of my consult, I base it on how important speech therapy is and auditory verbal therapy after the implant it's going to be because I think that's one of the pitfalls that we have. And it's because yeah, people, the expectations sometimes are also not realistic. Sometimes parents are not aware of all the, the work we have and they have to put into it because at the end of the day, the child depends on the parents <laughs> and depends on how uh, reliable the parents are to keep on going to the therapies after being implanted and installed. I always do I'll say an analogy that I, I like a lot, but it's uh, saying that, for example, the hearing aids are like a car. I made that uh, analogy and I just say that, well, with a car, you can drive a long way, but a cochlear implant can be an airplane. I mean, you can go to the other side of the world with a, a cochlear implant, but if you don't know how to drive a car, or even worse, if you don't know how to drive an airplane, you're going to have an airplane just parked there outside your house. And so what I just try to tell them is that learning to fly an airplane is really hard, and that takes a lot of time. But 
if they do it and if they take all the therapy and if they follow instructions and just dedicate and and know how much work they have to put into after the implant, that's gonna eventually influence, of course, and with the results that they're gonna have or see in, in the child later. So I think uh, because usually what happens it's that people maybe don't continue on follow up or they eventually the economic status, as I was telling you before, it's a limitation because sometimes there's parents that don't have money even to take a bus to get to the hospital or to get to therapy. And they live in places really far from, from the city or where they don't have access also to specialists that might give the therapy to a child. So all those kind of lim geographic limitations and economic limitations are one of the most that I, I see. And it's because usually it's people with low income resources that, that because the social security gives the implant completely to the child and to the parent. And, and so it's a very big investment that that social security does and that the parents don't have to pay anything at all. And as a matter of fact, the social security system also gives them money for transportation in, in some cases and gives them a lot of support, but still there's doesn't give them completely. And uh, the therapy, speech auditory uh, therapy, that is something that the social security system has several therapies, but they're not the ones who give the therapy. I mean, they do the evals and they might do some uh, checkup after the implant six months, uh, a year after the implant in order to check how things are going. And now in the last licitation that we did, when we bought the, the last implants, we asked for the companies that sold the implants also to guarantee uh, speech therapy for the first year after implant in order to try and to get better at those pitfalls that I was telling you about. And, and that has helped a lot, but still the speech therapists are having sometimes even trouble with getting the patient sometimes in, or sometimes technology-wise, and maybe they don't have a computer to do it virtually, or there's a, a lot of limitations there that we're trying to, um, to see how we can make them better. But the thing is that speech therapy eventually that the system or the national system uh, can give them for free. It's at schools already. And with each child, these children, the problem is that they're not, they don't go to school yet because they're small or sometimes the public education system isn't there yet with the speech therapy with enough people to go ahead and give good speech therapists and maybe not be available because the child doesn't go to school yet because of his age. And so once the child after cochlear implant receives that year that I was telling you about of speech therapy after cochlear implant, the parents have to go ahead and if they don't have it at school, they have to go ahead and pay for that therapy or access to that therapist. If they don't have one nearby because they live very far away from the city, then they have to see it that they have to go to where the therapist is so, so that those are the limitations yeah. but i think that's what we would see in, in underdeveloped countries i guess no i well i think you know no matter where you are i think setting expectations and sort of conveying that after you do the surgery it's not like a switch you know and mm -hmm. it's a switch there's retraining and you know it's a it's a long haul and so i, I think those expectations are you know how we talk to our families is universal and in terms of health equity or gaps or those limitations i think that it's in the states as well you know in terms mm -hmm. of transportation making the appointments being able to come in consistently not having access to virtual you know visits if that's even a possibility i mean 
And you're right, the family support from the very beginning yeah, is important. And that's where social work plays such a, a vital role in helping mm-hmm. set up, connect these resources and really also being their main advocate, uh, the family oh. advocate as well. Tell me a little bit about your older patients. How, What percentage of your patients are your infants that didn't pass the newborn hearing screen and have the severe to profound hearing loss versus, you know, your kids that are a little bit older, two to four, older, postlingual? Yeah, we still have a lot of those, uh, sadly. And I think pandemic, we were doing much better. And the pandemic really touched that uh, again, people not going to fob or being scared to go to uh, to hospitals, et cetera. And I think that it put us back. Yeah, because, I mean, we started doing implants. Um, the cochlear implant program was founded, uh, and I think I had told you before, founded by one of our mentors, one of my biggest mentors in my whole career and more in ear surgery. He found that, or we started, they started putting implants. I, I hadn't, I wasn't an ENT yet there, but it was in 2002. In 2002, it was a people from, from Costa Rica were going to other countries to have the cochlear implant at that time because it, the social security system didn't provide that there. There weren't surgeons here to do the implants. And he was the one, uh, Julian Chaveri Polini, that's uh, the mentor that I was telling you, uh, Dr. Chaveri. Um, started a, at that point saying, well, it's more cost effective to start doing the surgeries, of course, here because the social security was paying for the patient to go abroad. And so at that point, they started putting the first implants. Patients had to pay amount, a certain like the social security only put like $7,000 and the patient had to put the rest. But after 2006, we started giving the social security, giving the whole implant for the patient. When we started at that point, putting implants, of course, there were people, we were implanting 18 years old, 19 years old, prelingual patients that were really bad candidates. And uh, with the screening, uh, and also because I think there was less awareness, um, and sometimes uh, even doctors will dismiss the parents saying, oh, no, no, he'll talk later. Oh, no, no, he's just really slow in talking. And so there were patients that were getting really late, maybe three, four years, five years. And because of there wasn't a screening and eventually it, they might have passed the screening, but eventually did very legal or progressive, eventually hearing loss. Right now, numbers were better, but as I said, pandemic put us back and we started having delays on those children, eventually with the evaluations, eventually with a follow-up to also appointments. And uh, and those appointments, uh, I think we, we've recently, the last patients we've been implanting might be under three to four years. The youngest patient we've implanted, it's been maybe a year, a year and three months. Those are like maybe the, the smallest we've implanted. We haven't implanted a smaller or younger than one year old. We have right now about 497 patients implanted, adults and children. Of those 497 patients, we have, I think uh, we have 29% are 143 are between zero and five year olds. And then we have 79 patients, which are from five to 10 year old. And that's a 16% of those 497. And so we still, of those 497, it's like 65 to, I mean, we have a big population that it's still children, but it is, the numbers are not not as nice as we would like to happen because we are still implanting children that are bigger than we would hope to. 
for the group that's uh, that 16% between five to 10 years of age, are those uh, prelingual? Some of those are prelingual. And, and I think it, because those 497 patients have been in the time period that I was telling you about that it might be from 2006 to, to now. And those are their eight years old, prelingual eight year olds. And, and, and those, of course, the expectation hasn't, has been really limited. And eventually we have corroborated that they're not good candidates. And eventually those are sometimes eventually end up being non-users that it's also a shame. We always have, I think, like a moral <laughs> dilemma always when we discuss these patients in the, in the National Commission. After all the patients are evaluated through the different, we don't evaluate them together. We evaluate them independently. But then we bring the patient to a commission where we all like sit down and present the patient. And then we present the audiologist, presents the, the test, social worker presents the, her eval and, and so on. And at that point, we discuss the patient and usually because of age, of course, and as I was telling you before, because of the limit economic limitations and whatnot, we eventually write a, a note in their charts uh, saying what well, the prognosis, the expectations, and eventually what would they expect. And we always have a dilemma because uh, because of economic issues or the age that sometimes it's, it's like we know that he's not going to eventually develop language, but eventually you could say that he can get... Uh, benefit or it's relatively how you put it yeah <laughs> of the benefit with the environment exactly now. exactly exactly i always i always remember so hard i always remember a, a patient that we implanted really late she's the, she was implanted like i think when she was like 23 years old and it was prelingual she did have a little bit of yeah but not not really it, it was a prelingual uh, deafness and she was implanted, and of course, she didn't develop any language at all. But it's a it's a lady that now works in subway, so she is being able to interact with the environment through the implant. I mean, not communicate basically, but those are the the issues that I know it's a very high technology and sometimes an expensive one, <laughs> and so that that it's what makes it a little bit sad in the way that it's something that you don't have access to it because of how expensive it is. Uh, but eventually it's something that everybody might, uh, with different expectations of, of speech or not, but eventually it's something that might help a patient in other areas, not necessarily in speech. Uh, we have another patient that it's, she's blind and she's uh, prelingual. She doesn't have any language. Of course, she has genetic, uh, but she has other things with also with her kidneys and, and blind and everything. And she was implanted. And as a matter of fact, she had a, a heart failure recently. And her mother is just desperate to get it changed because it's been such an improvement in that girl, not with speech once again, but in the way that interacts with the mom and the way she follow ups uh, with other things and indications and everything. It's been a life changing for both of them. So, yeah. so as I said, you, you cannot generalize sometimes you have to go on a patient to patient basis and, and also they see, see the patient as a, as one and individualize that. Yeah, that these are always difficult and trying to figure out what is the overall goal at the end of the day. So tell me, I, I want to keep talking about workup, but I do want to, um, since we talked about the CI commission, uh, okay. what is the CI commission? You mentioned that before you implant anybody, the case gets presented. Who's part of this? Is this run by the healthcare system there? Yeah, it's a it's in a also healthcare system. 
it's between the uh, Hospital de Niños, that's where the children basically are, well, not all of them, but are present, and also Hospital México. El Hospital México is one of, we have four, like, big hospitals in the country. Three are adults and one is ch uh, children's. The program was initially started in Hospital México. That's where my mentor started it because that's where he worked. And that's where initially children and adults were even, the surgery was done on. And so the commission was based there and and it's still held there, but now it's uh, since uh, a couple of also years, uh, basically when yeah, me and, and another colleague started, the Hospital de Niños started being a part of that commission formally. And so now we get together, it's all cochlear infant surgeons, audiologists, social workers, I mean, all the people who do the workup before or that evaluate the patient before the implant are the ones who eventually have one or two appointments or more, depending each each person or each professional. <laughs> eventually, thus, all the workup before, meaning evaluates the patient, has all the studies needed. And once all the studies are complete, then we schedule the patient for the commission. That commission is held the first, usually Thursday or Friday of each month. And that's where, for example, if I have already evaluated three or four patients and I know that they have all the evaluations of the rest of the evaluating team, then I go ahead and present them there. And so I go ahead and present a CD scan and or MRI if, if that was the case. And um, eventually the speech therapist goes, uh, goes ahead and presents her part of the, her evaluation. And so other cochlear implants surgeons that have not heard the patient or have not seen the patient have like a complete... Uh, yeah, you uh, get a neutral patient. opinion, especially in the difficult cases. Exactly, exactly. And sometimes there might be patients where there is where you take the final also decision of no, it's not a good candidate or no, this this and this, and then eventually is he's rejected or accepted in that commission. Mm -hmm. That's great because then you have uh, your partners, your colleagues, and you feel like the decisions made as a team with exactly you know people that can share their experience too. That's always helping yes. with outcomes as well and and you know patient care. Tell me about imaging. So uh, what do you prefer? How hard is it to get CT, MRI? What's usually part of your workup? CT is easy to get. MRI is not that easy to get. We should be having on children MRI for all of them, CT and MRI. Both uh, uh, studies should be should be done usually, but we usually don't do that. Uh, we do CT scans for all of them, and if we any see any sites of malformations or any a small um, internal auditory canal, a small or any susp suspicion of meningitis before eventually those are the cases that are taken to MRI and that's because the child has to be sedated. A MRI is not something that the social security system has on basis. Usually it's something that they buy the services from other places. So um, MRI is not something that is so accessible. So we've tried to do them more often than we have before, but it's not something that we do on a regular basis. We basically uh, said or go on a CT scan. And are these usually just CT temporal bone non-contrast or do you usually, I can't get the MRI, does contrast help you at all? We usually don't ask with contrast. We usually just go ahead and do it with non-contrast CT yeah. scan. Okay. Just in terms of follow-up ABRs, let's say the baby, you know, you saw them at three months, they got a hearing aid. 
Uh, do you get one more ABR before surgery? I, I guess my question really is, um, so the babies that need another ABR, if usually for ours, if they're under six months, uh, we can get a nap ABR. But once they get older than six months or they won't nap, and we try several times, then we end up having to do sedated ABRs. Mm-hmm. Um, for you guys, is it a similar process for follow-up ABRs or is it difficult to get sedated ABRs? No, we do that. Uh, we do with nap. And sometimes we also administer hidrato de chloral. I don't know if that's something, how you say it in English? Or if you have it, but Hydrochloride, maybe? Yeah, we do use that in the cases if you cannot do them with a natural napping with the natural, because we do give instructions for the patients and for them to, yeah, maybe not to feed them in the last hours and maybe just to keep them awake so they would come and and fall asleep there, et cetera, and try what the audiologist usually go, goes ahead and give them uh, several recommendations. And eventually, if the child is not able to be uh, sedated with hidratochloride for any because of risk, other risk uh, of the patient, or because he doesn't, eventually doesn't fall asleep, we take them to the OR to do them, uh, yeah, sedated in the OR. But that's kind of like complicated because of space-wise and those are like kind of like exceptional cases, uh, the ones that we end up in the OR. And usually those are bigger children, maybe four, three to four years that are, maybe they have a diagnosis of autism and don't speak, but there's like a little controversy between. And because of that diagnosis, maybe parents didn't come up or never thought about hearing as being a, a problem. And so those are the the child children that, Sometimes we eventually end up taking it to the orb because it's they don't go ahead and, and nap or are not being are not we are not able to sedate them. Yeah, and then when you're thinking about candidacy, do you guys have like a protocol for implant candidacy or a checklist or? Yes, that is, and eventually, eventually, just seeing the the yeah the the overall checkup, but eventually they have to have all those evaluations before going into the commission. And so they have to have, uh, usually we do ABRs, auto-emissions. We eventually do also uh, uh, hearing aids also. The audiologist also does an evaluation with hearing aids and not with the hearing aids and with visual reinforcement and tries, yeah, to more or less do evaluation be- before also. A, that's a, a, to taking them to the commission. Those are like all the audiologic battery and eventually the speech therapist does the evaluation. But because we do have a protocol um, set up for the social security system and they have just to comply with all those testing. And once they are completed, then they go to the commission. And then in terms of the commission, the choice of implant, is that already decided then uh, by the healthcare system or does the family work with audiology to decide the implant? Um, usually a social worker and the speech therapist are working with, uh, with the patients, uh, with the parents about also expectations about their responsibilities and how everything's working. And eventually during that process, they uh, they decide that they, that's something they want, want or not want. Uh, but it's it's all um, like a process or you're all, maybe you're giving them a heads up of what's gonna be next probably because we're expecting that since the testing result, depending on the, of course, of the results of the testing, if there was a profound or severe or depending on on that, uh, we might be not only uh, deciding or predicting a little bit in a way, 
which ear to implant because, uh, and eventually also starting the journey with the parents of, of what's to be expected and where we're heading. And then eventually the commission has the last decision, but that probably the patient's going to be a cochlear implant uh, candidate. So the specific cochlear implant, like which company or which device, that's something that the family can work with audiology to decide. And or no, I'm sorry. I think that's decided by the healthcare system. Uh, yes, that is decided by the social security system. Uh, we, um, the social security system does a, a licitation. I don't know if that's how you say it in English, licitation. And um, the companies uh, eventually, they go ahead and, and compete. We have put the three advanced, Medel and Cochlear, uh, Cochlea, are the three uh, implants that we have put so far. Um, one year, maybe the licitation was won by one company. And then uh, in previous years, maybe the other one. The last licitations, we asked for the two. We wanted the three companies to be there. And so eventually, for example, not that one a little bit, but we, we for example, we put in, in, in on average, like maybe 40 implants a year. And of those 40 implants, you could say that this past years have been Medel and Advanced Bionics are the ones that have, we have put more on children and Cochlear had, has been more on adults. And it's not something that the parents or the audiologists decide. That's something basically, a, it's not arbitrary or it's something that eventually we, we just have, we just decide on, on what, on what to do. And sometimes on the, yeah, on the support the child has, why not? Yeah, that makes sense. And then, um, in terms of the pneumococcal vaccine, is that part of the healthcare yes. system, like the part of the shots? And then is that something y'all go ahead and pre-implant, you know, post? Yes. Yes, we, we do that. Uh, we do that uh, with all the children, though also because of the social security system that we have, all children the, the back, uh, and vaccination program, it's something that we're also, yeah, as, as an institution, really proud of. And so that's something that we do always uh, before the implant, at least, uh, yeah, the first shot. And, and depending, and, and yeah, no matter what the age of the child is, but they, they get the normal 23, normal 23, I think it is. And that shot always uh, before the implant. As we uh, start to wrap up, uh, Adriana, are there any final pearls or anything else that you would want to share with our listeners? And then definitely shout out to Chica, but just um, <laughs> yeah. from your CI, uh, any final pearls from your experience? And then we can definitely, you can tell our listeners about the Chica conference. No, that uh, I think, they, well, of course, depending on, on our audience, but we sometimes think that starting a program or starting doing implants might be uh, like a little bit complicated, but it's definitely a multidisciplinary thing that we have to do, of course. And and with the help of others, it's something that is really worth doing. And I think that goes uh, more to Latin American countries where there might be uh, still a lot of countries where uh, maybe access to that possibility or to that technology is not its not there yet. And I think it's just worth uh, giving it a shot uh, and worth uh, starting and trying and, and opening <laughs> opening the road there to make it access to, to everyone. Because I think um, they... Uh, Access to sound is such an important thing. Uh, us being so uh, social, <laughs> social humans, and and it's part of I think what um, what it's best. You have to start somewhere, and sometimes uh, even though you might not start with everything, you do have to start with uh, with educating the population and making the awareness is such an important thing for us as, as doctors and. 
giving access to sound uh, in all aspects is really important. So I think it might not be easy for people in underdeveloped countries to start, but there's a lot of people always with a very good motivation and that's the patient itself. And I think it's something that we should uh, start uh, trying to have it in, in other parts of the world that maybe, yeah, it doesn't make it as accessible as in other places. Well, it sounds like you guys have built an amazing program in only the last 20 years. So mm -hmm. uh, thank you again for sharing uh, the experience that you have uh, in Costa Rica. Quickly, tell us what Chica is, G-I-C-C-A. Uh, yeah. For listeners who might be uh -huh. That is, GICA is the Congress, the Ibero-Americano Congress of Cochlear Implants and uh, Ciencias Afines. That's like, uh, and scientists also that are, uh, <laughs> that are related. And that is going to be held. We're really proud because we're going to have that Congress held in Costa Rica in December of this year. And it's a really, really, really big uh, Congress. Uh, we have people from uh, Europe and Latin America and America coming in and, and also uh, cochlear implant surgeons that are really uh, on the top level and who are mentors for a lot of people. And it's going to be really exciting because also this year we're going to have a lot of the part, the vegetable part that we usually don't uh, integrate in cochlear implants or evaluate. And that's something that, as a matter of fact, in Costa Rica, we don't do. All the evaluation on the vestibular part, that we only concentrate on the cochlear and on the auditory, but not on the on the balance and and, best, and the vestibule. And so, yeah, we're ex really excited. It's going to be um, held in San Jose, Costa Rica. And so we'll, uh, hopefully we'll have a lot of you listeners <laughs> And visiting us and and getting very very good high level uh, academic info and awesome. So uh, for our listeners, G I C C A for Jika, please check it out. Thank you again, Adriana. I'm so glad we were able to connect again. Um, you're so brilliant. I loved being at the conference <laughs> in Barcelona because I felt like we were just like asking the one question after the other <laughs> on the same link like wavelength it was great um, I loved it for our listeners uh, thank you for tuning in you can find us on Spotify SoundCloud Ghana uh, and reach out to us anytime for any questions concerns or if you ever want to come on the show it's a wrap thank you so much for listening if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess and Yvonne Orvijinsky. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Thanks again for listening and see you next week.